Good to see you all here. So we have a men's breakfast this coming Saturday, the first Saturday of every month, 8 a.m. Hope you guys can make it. And also today is Memorial, or this is Memorial Day weekend, I should say. And Memorial Day is all about honoring those who gave their lives for our freedom. The holiday, as I did a little bit of brush up on it, I think dates all the way back to the 1860s and the civil war that occurred in this country. And we've had blood shed uh, on the homeland. Uh, we had an American Revolution, of course. We had a civil war. We've had blood shed abroad as uh, soldiers who have gone on the front lines uh, gave their very lives. Jesus put it this way, no greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And we could add for his country. And so I do want to take a moment to uh, honor the holiday. This is for those who have given their lives, given the ultimate price. But I think it's also appropriate that we honor anybody who's a veteran or in uh, active duty for the military today. So would you stand if that applies to you so we can honor you today? Thank you, guys. Appreciate your service to our country, and I do want to mention we have many police officers, uh, those who are involved in the fire department, first responders. We thank you for what you do as well. Um, on this particular Memorial Day weekend, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We are in chapter 9, so if you would find your place there, we're moving verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to open to chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you join us? Matthew 9, 1 through 13, the title is The Royal Physician. Matthew 9, 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, Matthew 9, 2. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this 11, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You can have a seat. Lord, your holy word is amazing. Each time we get a glimpse of Messiah in action, God in human flesh, we get another insight into the heart of God. You so love the world that you sent your son on a rescue mission to save sinners. Early in the Gospel of Matthew, that's what Jesus' name means. He will save his people from their sins. You are a God that saves, a God that throws the life preserver to all who will grab a hold of it in Christ. And Lord, hear what a scene we have before us as we watch you once again declare your authority even over sin. And we're so grateful that you came on that saving mission. And we fast forward to the end of Matthew when you institute the Lord's Supper. And you say, this cup represents my blood poured out for many for the remission or forgiveness of sins. This is why you came, because we have a sin problem and it's deadly and we need to be forgiven. And I pray that as we see the gospel, we see the one who is the gospel, the good news, Jesus, 
his life, death, and resurrection. I pray that we would have a newfound joy of our salvation and a new, uh, perhaps even a new insight into what it looks like to be saved and also to proclaim the good news of forgiveness in Christ. We lay this time at your feet, Father. Pray that we would teach the word accurately and according to your will and, re- and respond to it in a way that pleases you, I pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You'll notice in verse one of Matthew nine, Jesus got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. If you're with us last Sunday, we watched Jesus cross over from the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee in a place called Capernaum where he did a lot of his ministry and he moved to the northeastern shore, to the area known as the area of the Gadarenes. And if you were with us, you know that they encountered a storm on the sea and Jesus was asleep and he was exhausted from all the ministry that he had done. And the storm seemed to be devilish. Uh, It was dark. It was something that scared even seasoned fishermen. And they woke Jesus up and they said those famous words, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Save us. And they aroused Jesus from his sleep and he got up. And remember what he did? He rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, shh, who can do that? To the ocean, to, to the lake, to the wind, to the waves. And all of a sudden there was a great hush, a great calm came over the sea. And it caused the disciples to ask, what kind of man is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? And so they came to their destination there in the area of the Gadarenes. And up on the cliffs, there were two demon-possessed men. We learned that one of them responded that he had, his name was Legion. He had perhaps thousands of demonic spirits who had inhabited him. There were actually two of them. They came down from the tombs and they were such scary individuals that nobody was even passing that way anymore. Mark and Luke tell us that one of the men used to scream and croak at night, almost like you would hear coyotes in the night. He was crying out and dashing himself with rocks and trying to drive the demonic spirits out of him. And Jesus came to the shore to bring rescue and deliverance. And I painted a picture last Sunday, if you were with us, that I believe that it's quite possible that Jesus was hearing the hearts of those men on the other side of the sea. Lord, save us. We're being destroyed. Don't you care? Do you sleep? And Jesus came and brought rescue to those men. And one of the men, now dressed and in his right mind, said, Lord, please take me with you in the boat. I want to go wherever you are. That's where I want to be. And Jesus said to him, no, I want you to stay here. You're not going. And I want you to tell your city, tell your people all the great things that the Lord has done for you. Amen. And so that man became a missionary in the area of the Decapolis. And he was telling people, can you imagine what a testimony you were invaded with? How many demonic spirits? That's right. You were the dude up there screaming and howling at night. That scary person now in your right mind now you know, forgiven and saved and proclaiming the gospel. And so he'll do his work there. But Jesus got in the boat and crossed over because the people of the area, do you remember? Asked Jesus to leave. They were afraid of the incident with the swine going off the cliff, but they, they, perhaps they were fearful that Jesus would impugn or somehow, you know, uh, mess up their business or whatever it may be, but they asked Jesus to leave. And if you were with us last Sunday, I said, this shouldn't shock you because Israel essentially asked God to leave and America in many ways has asked God to leave. And I don't know how Jesus got into the boat, whether he was sad or anticipated, you know, the response or whatever it may be. It's hard to know, but he got into the boat. He honored their asking him to leave and he left. Sad scene when Jesus gets into the boat and leaves your area because you don't want him there. But it happens. There's people who don't want to deal with it. They don't want to hear about the gospel. They don't want that stuff, you know, in their midst. And off he went back to the other side of the sea, to the area that's described in verse 1 as his own city. Now, many of you know that Jesus' own city was actually Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. But you might remember that there was a scene in his own hometown where he went into a synagogue in Nazareth and he began to preach to his people and he opened up 
the uh, book of Isaiah. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And his own people took him to the brow of the hill of their city to throw him off. A prophet without honor in his own hometown, right? It can be difficult when you're trying to reach family and you're trying to share the gospel with them and, and you want to tell them the good news and they, they seem maybe a little bit more of a difficult mission field. Well, Jesus can relate. Can you imagine? Jesus got booted out of his own hometown and booted out of the area of the Gadarenes after de delivering these two scary men from demonic possession. So if you've been not always treated with open arms when you come in as the believer in the family, be of good cheer. Jesus understands. And this is the way the Son of God, God the Son, was treated. And so he honored it, and he came to this area called Capernaum. This is known as Jesus' adopted hometown. Uh, he, it was called his home. And it would seem that Jesus set up a base of operations from Peter's home. If you get a chance to go to Israel, and many of you have already been there, usually part of a normal tour will be the area or city of Capernaum. It's still there today. And it's called Jesus' adopted hometown and you can see uh, an old synagogue there. You can see what they believe is Peter's house, or at least they've called it Peter's house. And it's really an interesting part of going to the Holy Land. And it's right in the area of the Sea of Galilee there. And so Jesus is now back home, if you will, back in this place. And the scene, according to Mark 2.2, 2, that's before us, actually happens in a home, possibly Peter's home. Mark 2, 2, if you're taking notes, many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door as Jesus was speaking the word to them. Let's not forget that Jesus did a lot of teaching. We have scenes of healing that Jesus does, but he did a lot of teaching. We studied the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters five through seven. He was a teacher. He taught the people, assembled the crowds there, and Peter's house seems to often be a place where there were so many people, there was standing room only, people couldn't get into the door. And many were just trying to hear part of his sermon or maybe get a sick loved one somewhere in his vicinity so that he might touch them and heal them. And so this is the scene now as Matthew tells a, kind of a more abbreviated portion or abbreviated uh, story here. And he says, And behold, as the camera pans, Matthew 9, 2 they were bringing to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic. Let's pause there for a second. So the man that's brought to Jesus is paralyzed. Some versions call this a palsy. And scholars would say when you look at the original word for this paralysis, they don't know exactly what the cause was, whether he was born this way whether he might have had some sin in his life that caused a gradual paralysis. The, the word can speak of something that gradually comes upon a person. And so we don't know for sure what happened, whether it was, you know, he was born this way, whether something happened in life, whether he just had a normal injury, a back injury, or something happened to his legs, he fell. We don't know. But it would appear that he was a quadriplegic, so he didn't have use of his limbs, and back in that day, remember, there's no wheelchairs, not all this, these building codes about, you know, doing things for the disabled, no therapy groups. In fact, the mindset in the ancient culture is that if you're disabled, you probably are under the curse of God. Romans, uh, I'm sorry, John 9 implies that the disciples say of the man born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way. And Jesus said, no, nobody sinned. Not all sickness or situations like this are because of sin. We have to be careful there. But it could be. We don't know for sure. But the man has been in a gradual paralysis that now has put him on his back. And the only way that you could move around in this condition is through the movement on a stretcher, kind of an ancient stretcher where, where if you had friends or family, they could move you. No wheelchair, no way to move. They had to put you on this stretcher to kind of take the four corners of it. That's why there's four friends here and move you around. And you might be seen as an outcast. The people of the society, this is wrong thinking, but would see you perhaps under the curse of God or you did something wrong and that's why you're under this judgment. And it was a very lonely life. Many people might have turned away from this 
particular individual. And remember, Jesus was here to heal all the people that society had rejected, like lepers and centurion servants and uh, demoniacs and the like. This is what Jesus does. He comes to save those who need a doctor. And so he is the royal physician. And we are told in the other gospels in Mark and Luke, do you remember how these guys got the man to Jesus? They couldn't find a way in. So they dug a hole in the roof of Peter's home. They went up, in in Israel, they would have stairwells on the outside of homes, flat roofs where they would grow crops sometimes or they would just have as an extra place to sit or whatever. So the roof was flat. So they'd probably go up an outside stairwell of a neighboring home, somehow get him over to that roof and then they began to dig in Peter's roof, which would have sticks and, you know, brush and uh, thickness, and they would be digging and making a mess. Can you imagine, Peter? No! (laughs) Not bad enough that you people are always at my house, but now you're digging holes in my roof. Who's going to pay for this? I could feel Peter saying, Lord, stop this stuff. But they found a way. Faith found a way. These are some pretty good friends, amen? And remember, faith, we've talked a lot about faith, and we're in Hebrews 11 on Wednesday nights, and faith often has obstacles. Faith might have a Red Sea, a Jordan River, giants. Uh, Maybe you're thinking, is there a way in my situation? Faith found a way. They got to the roof, they dug a hole, and they lowered the man down and basically placed him right at Jesus' feet because they loved him. You know, the essence of love is we bear one another's burdens and thus we fulfill the law of Christ. And we want to get people to Jesus' feet, amen? We want people to hear about the good news. We want them to experience the touch of the Lord. And these men, you know, got their hands dirty, so to speak. And sometimes if you get in the trenches with other people, you're going to get your hands dirty. And sometimes it's exhausting. It's hard to bear others' burdens, but... This is what the Lord says is one aspect of our love. And so they dug the hole and they lowered him down. And Jesus saw their faith. Look at the middle of verse two. Seeing their faith, an active faith, no doubt. And I think it's the faith of all of them, the four friends plus the man who's paralyzed. And you can feel it. Jesus saw their faith. That seems to be an acknowledgement that things are good. The man's at Jesus' feet. Jesus is doing all kinds of healings left and right. So here it comes, right? He's about to say it. Get up and walk. We're going to see a miracle. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says to him, take courage. Be of good cheer. Other renderings have it. My son. I don't know if he calls anybody else my son in the New Testament. Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Why did he say that? Obviously, the man has come because he's in a stretcher, because he's paralyzed. But there is a paralysis much more significant in all of our lives, and it is the issue of sin. Oftentimes, when I address a group of people, like at a memorial service, I'll try to explain why we die. The Bible says the reason we die is because of sin, the wages of our sin is what? Death. The soul that sins shall surely die. We live in a world under the curse of sin. Death is is the result. And so everybody walking around, I don't care who they are, has the same issue, the SIN virus, 100% deadly, 100% of the time. And your greatest need will be to have your sin forgiven. You know, Those who are psychiatrists and psychologists say that what plagues mankind, what causes many people to be in emotional crises is a guilty conscience. And I've talked to many people over the years, and I've sensed this myself included, that when my sin was forgiven, I felt as if a weight had come off of my shoulders. Can you relate? As if I had risen to a new life, and that's indeed true spiritually speaking. And many of Jesus' miracles, please hear this, were also parables. The miracle was physical. The parable 
peered into the spiritual realities. Each one of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're disabled by sin, and it's going to cause us to die. But we can be made alive. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. So we've got to trust in him. Take courage. Be of good cheer. My son, I want you to make this your own. My daughter, your sins are forgiven. If you are in the new covenant and you know Jesus Christ, that's you. My son, my daughter, God might say to you, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way. God is no longer counting your sins against you. Praise the Lord. That's a good time for a hallelujah right there. Do you know why? Because God charged your sin to his son. His son took the wrath of God at the cross for you and for me. And you are a forgiven person if you are in Christ Jesus. His righteousness has been credited to your account by faith. Praise the Lord. Be of good cheer. If nothing else this week, could you remind yourself this week? Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. I'm a forgiven man. I cannot forget who I am in Christ. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. You are right in the sight of God because of the work of the Son. This is who you are. This is the good news of the gospel. And if you've been waiting to tell someone about this good news, start with that. I have some really good news. Your sin was Nailed with him at the cross. Trust him. Grab the life preserver. Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. But you can feel some in the room saying, but, but okay, that, that's cool and all. But he's crippled. And you've been healing people left and right. Why just say to him your sins are forgiven? Because I think Jesus knew that deep in this man's soul, that was the real, more significant issue. Not that Jesus doesn't have compassion for our aches and pains and significant health issues. But Jesus saw the deeper issue. We all have that issue. And so he said, be of good cheer. Take courage. Don't be afraid, we might add. Your sins are forgiven. That is so significant, so beautiful, so wonderful. That could be a freeing thing for you today. If you've not met the Savior, call out to him. But how could Jesus proclaim forgiveness to this man? If you're a Jewish leader there, you're up in the northern part of Israel, and you might say, well, where's the sacrifice for his sin? We have a system for this kind of thing. You've got to make a sacrifice of an animal. Their blood has to be shed, and then you're forgiven until you blow it the next time, Right? How could Jesus proclaim forgiveness? Where's the sacrifice? And by what authority could he proclaim such a thing? And remember, the disciples have been asking questions about what kind of man he is, that even the wind and the waves obey him, demonic spirits obey him. He has power over sickness, sin, uh, Satan, death, you name it, he has power over it. And how might one receive forgiveness in Christ? Even at that moment, if we were way back in that house, how could Jesus proclaim forgiveness? Because he saw, please hear me, the man's faith. Because salvation is by grace through faith. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Whether you're this side of the cross or this side of the cross, salvation comes by faith in Christ. So Jesus saw their faith, saw his faith, and proclaimed this forgiveness. And I believe that it was instantaneous. The moment Jesus says the word, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. That's the authority of Christ, amen? Just say the word, Lord. And you know, when you confess Jesus Christ, you heard the gospel and you said, Lord, please save me, forgiven. That's the end of the story because it's already been paid for. 
paid in full. We couldn't spend enough time there, but we got to move on. But behold, some, there's always some in the crowd. (laughs) Some of the scribes, these are the Bible experts of the day, closely related to the Pharisees, said to themselves, notice, this fellow blasphemes. Jesus knowing or saw their thoughts, literally saw their thoughts and said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Can you imagine being one of the scribes or Pharisees and Jesus knows your thoughts? Why are you thinking evil? (laughs) What do you you mean I wasn't thinking? (sighs) And you know, the Bible says that the only person who knows their own thoughts is that person. You are the only one that knows your own thoughts. Oh, however, there's someone else who knows your thoughts. God. In fact, in Psalm 139, it says he knows a thought before you think it. Yeah, exactly how I feel. (laughs) It's really inconvenient at times, right? But think about it. This is another evidence of Jesus' divinity. How could Jesus know people's thoughts unless he's God? Some, some might argue, well, he had the word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit, and that we could go back and forth on that. But many times in, in the, the New Testament, we see Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what people were thinking. Mark puts it this way. If you're taking notes, Mark 2, 6 through 8. There were some of the scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can for, forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit, that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Now this shows that Jesus is divine, but he also confronts their wrong thinking. By the way, if he's guilty of blasphemy, according to the Old Testament, it's a capital offense and he should die on the spot. And there's several occasions in Jesus' earthly ministry where he says, I and the Father are one, and they want to take up stones to stone him, and they want to stone him for blasphemy, and they have Old Testament precedent for this. But Jesus isn't blaspheming because Jesus is God. Once again, let me remind you, you cannot read the Gospels without coming to the conclusion that Jesus is God. He takes the divine prerogative left and right in these accounts. And so he confronts them. He says, why are you thinking evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, five, your sins are forgiven, or to say, keyword say, rise and walk. Now, it would be relatively easy to say either one. I could say rise up and walk as easily as I could say, your sins are forgiven. If I said, okay, right now all of your sins are forgiven, You might say, well, Pastor Michael, by what authority do you say that? And in addition to that, how might I measure that empirically? What evidence would I have to know that that was true? Can I see forgiveness of sins? I might see an outward, like, relaxation. Someone might say, I feel like burdens are off my shoulders, but there's no way to really measure that. But it's a lot harder to back up, rise up and walk, amen? It's one thing to say something that we can't necessarily see. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man, that's the divine messianic title from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. That you may know, Jesus wants them to know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Now, Jesus is about to use the physical sign to back up his authority. If you want to know if what I just said is valid, if it's real, if it's authoritative, if I can actually proclaim what I just said, all right, you want to see it? He says to the paralytic, rise up and walk. And the other gospel accounts say immediately he rose up. Can you imagine? Maybe there were some cracking noises and things. Moving back into play. I don't know. You know, some of your backs make some crazy noises as it is, right? I don't know how things realigned, but joints got strengthened, and all of a sudden the guy popped up, took his bed, and went home. And I think it's Mark or Luke that say the whole time he was going home, he was like this Praise the Lord! Huh? Well, isn't that the guy that was parent? Praise the Lord! He's got a stretcher in. Yeah! 
Off he goes to his home. Why? Why did Jesus tell him to go home? Because when you get right with the Lord and you get touched by the Lord, you're home. You're, you're where you belong. And here's something else practically. In that day, if you were the uh, family of a tax collector, a leper, a disabled person, as sad as it is, you would be considered an outcast. And he wanted to go share the good news with his family. I've been healed. I can walk. I mean, this is a beautiful testimony. And so Jesus provides the healing. It says he rose and he went home. Well, can I talk a little bit to these guys? Can we have a cup of coffee? No, go go home. And so off he goes. And can you see the scribes and Pharisees? Rats and double rats. He did it again. Do you read anything about they fell on their faces and repented? Do you read anything about, you know, oh, you, you must be God or you must be the son of man. Look what you just did in front of my eyes. Nothing. Seems like they just went and commiserated a little bit more and tried to figure out, at least for most of them, how they would rid themselves of him. But when the multitudes eight saw this, they were filled with awe. Wouldn't you be if you were there? And glorified God who had given such authority to men. I think that last part tells us they don't really know who Jesus is yet. But the glory is good. Luke's gospel tells us they were filled with astonishment and fear. They said to one another, we've seen remarkable things today. Mark 2.12 says, we've never seen anything like this. But there's an irony here that you need to hear about. Later, in a couple of chapters, Jesus will condemn the city of Capernaum for their unbelief. He will say, and you, Capernaum, if the miracles done in you would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes a long time ago. But you, nope. You know, just because you see a miracle doesn't mean that you're going to become a believer. Lazarus was called out of the tomb and the religious elite were still trying to figure out how to get rid of Jesus and Lazarus, John 11. So just, you know, I know a lot of people say, if I just saw one miracle, I'd be a believer for the rest of my life, would you? Or would you be looking for the next miracle? And I think that's what happens in a lot of modern so-called faith, it's always the next thing. Brothers and sisters, look, I love to see God do supernatural things and he does do them. But we walk by faith and not by sight. And trusting God is going to include when you don't understand and when you don't see everything you want to see and you still walk by faith. In Hebrews 11 we just began the chapter on Wednesday nights and we've been introduced to Abel and we're gonna study Enoch and we're gonna study Noah and we'll study Abraham and Moses and all of these people in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, had incredibly difficult circumstances. Noah told to build an ark when it probably had never rained before. Enoch lived in a generation that was in such a moral decline that God said, I'm gonna flood the world and he connected it to the birth of a man named Methuselah. If you want to know more, come Wednesday night at seven o'clock. But on and on through the chapter, it says by faith, by faith, by faith. And in each case, it's a case study in walking in a world anti-God and still standing. This is what faith does. And yeah, we need encouragement. And yes, it's a, it can be tough. But Capernaum did not as a whole, really repent even after Jesus did all of these signs. Now, from there, we'll read a little bit about Matthew and tackle the final verses. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. See the word saw? It's a same idea of seeing their faith. It's to see be, behind the veil, if you will, to see the soul. He saw a man called Matthew. Uh, he's called Levi in Mark chapter 2. 
He was sitting in the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. As Jesus moves away from the miracle of the paralytic, there's another man with a paralysis. Oh, he can walk physically, but he has sold his soul to mammon. Matthew would be one of the greatest uh, hated people in the area of Capernaum. The evidence is that he had a tax booth. And they say, when you do a little research on this, that they had tax franchises and there were many tax collectors in the area. The higher-ups kind of did things from a distance. If you were the lower echelon, you sat in the tax booth and you collected taxes from your own people in league with the emperor of Rome. And you were hated by your own people. Another outcast that Jesus is going to reach out to. Another deplorable, if you will, that he's going to reach out to. And so he looked at Matthew's soul and he saw a spiritual paralysis. Probably Matthew had watched groups of people go back and forth, up and down crowds. What did he do now? He just healed that guy. Whoa, what did he do now? He just, uh, there's, there's stories from the other side of the lake. And he was right on the seashore. And guess who he collected taxes from? Fishermen! And Peter and Andrew and James and John had to say, oh no, Lord, not Matthew. You want us to work side by side with a tax collector? You have to be kidding. See, it's always terrible when we look at someone else's sin. Remember what he was doing? Oh, you're gonna work side by side with him. He's gonna be one of the apostles. Can you imagine Matthew writing this? And Jesus passed on from there and saw a man named Matthew. That's me. Can you imagine the emotion of writing this gospel? He chose me. He saw my spiritual paralysis. He knew who I was. He heard my soul saying, I wonder if he could save someone like me. I've sinned so much. I have so much filth in my life, so many stacks of money and things I've done to step on people, my own people. I sold my soul. Could I get it back again? Could he forgive someone like me? Oh, more than that, he can use someone like you. You know, your past can often become a platform to ministry. But imagine Matthew sitting there. He had really given everything away that should have been near and dear to him. And his name, according to the other gospels, was Levi. Jesus may have renamed him Matthew. We don't know. Many uh, Hebrew people had two names, Simon Peter. Uh, Joseph is also called Barnabas in the book of Acts. So not unusual. We don't know for sure. Matthew means gift of God. Levi, think with me, brethren. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob, and his line served as what? Priests. Levi, Matthew, should have been involved in the stuff of the temple, handling that which is holy. Instead, he forfeited that line and handled all the filthiness of this world. That was Matthew, sitting in the tax booth, sold his soul like some have done in our time, like some baseball organizations in our time, which will not be named this morning. You can probably put the pieces together. And for what? To check a box? To be categorized as something to please whomever you're trying to please? That's Matthew. And Matthew's sitting there and probably wondering, and here... We have to say, as much as we see our culture basically almost having lost its senses, our culture needs to come back to the Lord. And there's Jesus, and he calls this man, hated by everyone around him, and he says, follow me. And when, when uh, Matthew got up and followed, I think it's Luke says, he left everything behind. That would mean, you know, fishermen could go back to their boats, but tax collectors, you ain't going back to your business, man. It's done. And you probably left all your money with it. That's a commitment. 
And it happened, 10, that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, this is uh, according to Luke Matthew's house or Levi's house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So now Matthew's probably got a sizable home and he's so excited about his call and his salvation, he invites all his fellow tax collectors and other sinners in the community, prostitutes and the like, and probably the healed leper and all the, the people that the religious elite would look down on. And a big old dinner party and everybody's hanging out and there's Jesus right in the middle of all of these sinners. Can you believe it? He attended an IRS party. Where do, you, where, do you, where do you want to go tonight? Oh, there's a bunch of IRS people having a party. Let's go. They're, they're serving steak and lobster. I think the whole time I'd be trying to cover my face at that IRS party. <laughs> Hope nobody's saying, I'm not exchanging business cards with anybody, that's for sure. And there's Jesus hanging out with these people. And when the Pharisees saw it, they always seemed to be like right outside the window, you know. Looking at, what's he doing now? I don't know. He just took a bite of that steak. It's unbelievable. Look how close he is to that, Matthew. And when they saw this, they probably found the closest disciple kind of on the fringes because they didn't want to go into the house and be unclean. They said, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? Doesn't he know who these people are? But when he heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor or a physician, but it's those who are sick. This is in the form of a proverb. Where would you expect a doctor to be? Among the sick. Because the well don't need any healing. And I think the well here are those who are prideful and don't think they need healing. And then he says to the Bible experts of his day, final verse, but go and learn what this means. Now this phrase is what the Bible experts used to say to people who were ignorant of their Bibles. The Bible experts, the scribes and the Pharisees would say, oh, you, you don't know anything, son. Go and learn, what, go do a devotion in, in, you know, in Exodus and go, go figure this out. And Jesus uses it on them. Hey, go and learn what this means. <gasps> How dare him? I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus quotes from Hosea 6, verse 6. I'm going to take you to two Old Testament passages and we're done. First, Psalm 32. Turn over there with me, Psalm 32. One thing I want to leave you with is the blessedness of having your sins forgiven. David, in Psalm 32, writes this, um, probably in connection to his fall in adultery with Bathsheba. And he describes what happened in that year where he hid his sin and it connects to paralysis in this sense. When you look at the word paralysis in Greek lexicons, it has the idea of losing one's vitality and connects to the paralytic. Take a look. This is Psalm 32, verse 1. David, now in the aftermath of having been forgiven, says, How blessed or oh how happy, or be of good cheer, we might say, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man or the woman to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit, no fraud. Think of Matthew. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. You can start to put pictures of the demoniacs, the paralytic right there. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah, whenever you see Selah, it's a pause in the music. This was originally a song and it's two Ps, pause and ponder what you just read. Think about it. How, oh, how happy, how blessed. David felt crippled in a sense when he was in rebellion to God and tried to hide his sin. You ever been there before? You ever felt as a believer God's heavy hand on you? 
Remember, the paralytic is a picture of a nation who needs to repent and come back to God that needs to rise again and they won't seem to listen, at least not their spiritually elite. To the book of Hosea, you say, where's that, Pastor Michael? That's past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. I'd like you to turn there if at all possible. It's one of the minor prophets, Hosea 6. I'm gonna give you time because I'm just gonna share with you really quick the big picture of the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is about a prophet of God called by God to marry either a prostitute or a woman that he knew would be unfaithful to him, one that would commit adultery. Hosea 6 is what you want. And God says, I want you to marry her, though she's going to be unfaithful to you, and your marriage to her will become a picture of my love for my people. Though they are wayward, though they commit spiritual adultery on me, though they seem to be so willing to walk away from my love, I continue to love them. I continue to extend my hand. Look at Hosea 6, keeping the big picture in mind. Jesus quotes from Hosea 6, 6, so let's learn what it means. Let's read the context, verses 1 through 6, quickly. Come, 6, 1 of Hosea, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, says God? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. They're so wishy-washy, if you will. Therefore, I've hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I spoke harsh words to them, if you will. I've slain them by, my, by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I, and here is the quote that Jesus gives in Matthew 9. I delight in loyalty. It could be rendered compassion or loyal love. It's the Hebrew word hesed rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's like in the book of Hosea, brethren, God extends the olive branch to a wayward people and says, look, I'm a compassionate God. And though you continue to be wayward and cheat on me, I'm extending my arm to you again. Would you come home? Would you know that I'm a God of compassion? And I sent my son... And we're going to read about this in Matthew chapter 9, a little later, who looks over the multitudes and has compassion. Why? Because he knows we're like sheep without a shepherd. He knows what we need. We need our sins forgiven. We need to come home. We need to come back to God. But we see another principle in our world and even in our flesh, and that is the principle of sin. And we're intoxicated by sin at times. And at times, it, it seems to be the easier road to go it without God or to kick him out of our region or to say, I'm not gonna take a stand here because it might be unpopular. And the Lord says this, I desire compassion above your religiosity. I could care less about what you wear or your diet during the week what I care about is your soul. What I care about is whether or not you actually care about the people that I love and I've come to save. And for us, one application point is, Lord, give me a heart for the lost. That's who I was. I was at the tax booth. You saw my soul. And yet you called me to follow you. Oh, Father, help us in this uh, Reality of knowing, first of all, the gospel, the good news. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. We think of David, how blessed is the man or the woman whose sin is covered, whose transgression has been dealt with, who doesn't have iniquity imputed to them, but rather righteousness. Lord, see our faith. We know you see us. And we collectively as a church body want to tell you we love you and we believe. 
Help our unbelief and our waywardness, O Lord. We do cry out for our nation on this Memorial Day weekend that our nation would have an awakening, a great awakening, Lord. Oh, how we need it. We are lost and confused in so many ways. But Lord, if we come back to you, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Help us, Father. We know how fickle we can be as believers, so how much more we shouldn't be perhaps shocked by some of the things we see. Oh, we need to come home, Lord. And you call us to be the voice in our generation to bring the good news to people like Matthew and the paralytic and the demoniacs and those who maybe nobody else wants to talk to. Nobody else would even give a thought to. You are the God who extends a hand of mercy. You're a God of compassion. You just stay in that attitude of worship and seeking the Lord. And if you've not had a moment where you told the Lord, I believe, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if you've heard the word and you have ears to hear and you want to grab that life preserver, you take hold of eternal life by faith. And the moment that you exercise saving faith, the Lord will declare you innocent. Not because you did anything, but because you trusted in his finished work. Won't you do that right now? Settle it. Lord Jesus, I believe in who you are. I believe in your authority. I believe in your love. I see what you did here, extending your hand of mercy to someone like Matthew, the paralytic, and so many others. And Lord, that's me. And I repent. Right now, pray it if it's you. I repent of my sin and I place my trust in you, Jesus. Maybe you've been a wayward son or daughter. Maybe you are sensing that God's hand has been heavy on you because you've been in rebellion. Oh, just turn. He's so gracious. He'll heal you of your backsliding. He'll bring you back to where you need to be. And Lord, for this precious congregation, so many of them are so active in their faith, so uh, wanting to please you, sharing the good news, uh, caring for others, expressing the gospel in so many ways. Would you bless them? Would you renew their strength? Would you renew their joy? Renew the joy of their salvation, Lord. Let us have a week where the load is a little lighter, our smile is a little wider, and we can just be rejoicing in the God of our salvation. We love you. I ask your blessing on them. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.